are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Pro-abortion rights rallies are to take place this weekend following a failed attempt to pass the Women's Protective Rights Act to codify Roe v. Wade in the U.S. Senate yesterday. We talked to civil rights and discrimination attorney Elizabeth Fujiwara earlier this week about Hawaii's place in history within the abortion rights movement. She credits Hawaii's Governor John Burns and legislator Vince Yano with early passage of the bill allowing abortion in the islands. She strongly opposes the latest efforts to undermine Roe versus Wade and fears what could follow. Hawaii was the first state to make access to abortion legal, and uh, that happened in 1970. Before that, of course, it was illegal. And we're very lucky. At the time, the two most important people, Vinciano and John Burns, were both Catholic. Vinciano was a senator, and he helped to make it law. And they were clear, clear about the separation of church and state, as apparently the Supreme Court has no idea. When you saw the headlines, you know, this leak from the Supreme Court, what were your thoughts? I was disgusted. Kavanaugh had lied. Amy had lied. Alito had lied. They had all said at the confirmation hearings that Roe v. Wade was president, and clearly they did not mean it. They just said it as part of the Federalist Society to get appointed. So I think at this point, we don't have a real U.S. Supreme Court. They're just political hacks. Some people are concerned that if this does get changed, that it will mean changes to other laws like same-sex marriage. Yes, that's because same-sex marriage, the right to access to abortion, as well as interracial marriages, are all based on the 14th Amendment the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause. So none of that was stated in the original Constitution, clearly. I mean, that Constitution was written by rich white men who at that time owned slaves and were misogynistic towards their wives and mothers. At that time, women had no rights at all. But historically, people need to know there were abortions going on in the United States. So it's only the past few hundred, well, 100 years or so that people became uptight about it. It was when the medical profession, I believe in the middle of the 19th century, started to say that abortion wasn't a good thing. But up to that time, it was just considered as something that happens. What are your thoughts about what will happen here in the islands if the states are allowed to decide? Right now, just looking at the draft opinion, it looks like they're just leaving it up to the states. So Hawaii women are safe for right now. But the problem is because of these insane evangelists um, that the Supreme Court seems to follow, they are going to try and make it so all abortions are banned in the entire country. And so that is the fear. But right now, with this decision, it's it would still be all right for us, just like it would be all right for California, New York, Massachusetts, and so forth. Right. But if, let's say, folks from the other states where it is banned seek it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What will happen is they'll, they'll go to the other states, and then they're going to try and punish the women who go to the other states, and they're going to try and punish the providers. But I believe the California governor said the other day that they won't allow extradition and so forth. So it's going to be very tricky. I just feel so badly for all those women, especially black and brown women and poor women, who can't even afford to get get abortion access. And some of these states are saying they will cover the cost of the abortion and the transportation. But then the trick is, is to get that information out, right? What should our listeners know as this conversation happens across the country and in our state? And we go back to Hawaii being the first state, uh, as you right. mentioned, to you know uh, uh, prohibit discrimination, uh, the first state to uh, uh, you know make sure we had uh, abortion rights, and the uh-huh. first state yeah. to go for gay marriage. Yes, SMS to Yes. Uh, I think what the listeners want to be aware of is that they be very careful in whom they elect to Congress at this point to make sure that any candidate is in favor of reproductive freedom. There's law that's 
they're trying to get voted on this week, the Women's Health Protection Act. It probably won't be passed, but I'm sure that if we can get more Democrats in Congress, it might have a chance in the next session. The other concern is to make sure even that our local representatives and senators are also pro-reproductive freedom, because it's crucial if we don't have them with us, then we're in deep trouble. Also, people might want to start donating to different groups that are helping these women. One that I'm familiar with is called the Yellow Hammer Fund, F-U-N-D. They have a website, and uh, you can donate to them. What they are doing is they are helping fund abortions in the Deep South, especially for black women who need the access, and to help them get the abortions. Do you think, given our history, that it will be unlikely that lawmakers here will, you know, reverse the position on abortion rights? I think it will be very unlikely. And for another thing, we are one of the first states to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. We have it in our state constitution. Are we so the only that ones? That makes it even stronger for us. Are we the only ones we have, that have that? No, other states have it, but we were the first ones. But there is no federal ERA because it's never been passed yet. We have strong constitutional rights for the We have the ERA, and we also have privacy rights in our constitution. And uh, privacy was the big issue, right, for Roe versus Wade? Correct. We were just chatting earlier about, you know, whether what's happening across the country, the divisiveness, whether mm-hmm. that affects yes. our young people's decision about where they go to college um, yeah. or where they live. It's I don't know. It's very scary. They need to be sure they're not in a state that opposes abortion access because if they are, then they may run their life. You know, they can't have a career because they'll be busy busy raising a child, or I shouldn't say they can't have a career, but it's always very difficult if you're 19 years old and you have a child when you're still a child yourself. I think it will have a chilling effect on women's rights in general because, as you know, uh, we have been a second-class citizen since the beginning of this country. Think about it. First, we didn't get the right to vote until 1920 contraceptives weren't legal until 1965, then abortion becomes legal in 1973, and then in 1974, women finally did not have to get their husband's signature to get a credit card or a loan. They could now do that in their own name. Then in 1993, finally women didn't need to notify their husband to get an abortion. And then in 1993 also, finally marital rape was declared illegal. It wasn't that long ago. So, I mean, we have other rights to pregnancy discrimination, sex discrimination, sexual harassment, prevention, and so forth. But just looking at what I just listed, it's just appalling. So they will probably move to get rid of a lot of these things also if this same Supreme Court stays where they are. That's why we really are lucky we live in Hawaii. So, but we are in a really difficult time. Oh, beyond difficult, because with Rogan, women who terminate their pregnancies are likely to be treated as killers in those states that forbid access to abortion. And the other problem is, if a woman has a natural miscarriage, she can be arrested because they'll think that she tried to kill the fetus. And before... They were prevented from doing that in Texas because we still had Roe v. Wade. And that was just recently they were pulling that off. Kind of a scary time. Yeah, it's very scary. It's very scary. So I think Biden needs to pack the court. He He was against it. Now he needs to do it. That was Honolulu civil rights attorney Elizabeth Fujiwara, who we talked to earlier this week. Uh, She was talking about the recent leak of a draft opinion of the U.S. Supreme Court and the implications for abortion rights across the country and here in the islands. Fujiwara was the co-author of a book entitled Our Rights, Our Lives, A Guide to Women's Legal Rights in Hawaii, published by the group uh, Hawaii Women Lawyers. Look for links to their organization on our website later today. And the Hawaii Democratic Party said it will join Planned Parenthood, Women's March, Indivisible, and Matriarchy Rising this Saturday to protest the move by conservatives on the high court to overturn Roe versus Wade to let the states decide if they will ban abortions.
our reality check today with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat looks at the Navy's Red Hill Underground Fuel Facility. It's a story by reporter Christina Jedra, but it is editor Chad Blair who joins us today. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Catherine. Happy to fill in from, for Christina. Off doing many things, as you can imagine. Yes. And so this story um, flags that uh, the Navy actually found problems um, with that uh, fuel tank farm before we had this crisis in the fall. Yeah. What, what Christina was able to do is obtain some documents uh, that reveal that the problems with fuel operations by the U.S. Navy have been going on well before those two publicized leaks that we all know about from from last year, and of course, which has led to all the news attention and the Navy now, of course, saying they're going to decommission Red Hill at some point. But in fact, uh, there have been problems not only in the Pearl Harbor area, but also uh, on Kauai near PMRF, right? Pacific Missile uh, a range facility there, Barking Sands. Basically, they are not being in compliance with their environmental protection rules. And it's been going on for longer than we expected. This information has been confirmed by the Navy. They are not telling us many much more in detail, but this is actually their own report. This is coming from uh, NAVSEP, the Naval Supply Systems Command. NAVSEP is the acronym. Uh, and without these documents obtained by uh, by civil beat about these multiple fail- failures around Pearl Harbor, around PMRF, we wouldn't know about this. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, it's distressing because you're thinking, okay, if they weren't, um, if things weren't buttoned down and they weren't following their own procedures, uh, you know, it's like, could this have all been prevented? Yeah, I, I'd like to read off a couple of the points that she she reported. Again, this is coming from the Navy itself, this summary from NAVSOP. Leadership was not aware of its own responsibilities regard, uh, regarding fuel operations. Required annual spill training was not happening. And there was actually a mindset uh, that you maintain the status quo, which is, frankly, to not question environmental risk. Uh, minor leaks uh, were not being cleaned up and fixed as they should have. Uh, and if you don't mind, I'm just going to read a couple more. Mm-hmm. Valves were left open that should have been shut down. Uh, personal responsibility uh, for discharging these fuel from in above ground leaks instead of putting them in what are known as uh, catchment systems. Excuse me, let me clarify. They were going into catchment systems rather than in spill buckets uh, that all should have been reported. So it's, it's damning. I would put it in minor terms, but don't use me as the source. David Hankin of Earth Justice says this really is a pattern of carelessness and frankly disturbing. And that is in his words, Earth Justice, of course, very much like its own name, very much involved in these issues, uh, often focused on military activities in the islands. Right. So the people that were in charge, um, you know, did they have the the know-how and the training to operate that facility? It certainly raises questions uh, when you have this information provided by the Navy. Right. The the Naval inspectors themselves found that maintenance programs uh, regarding fuel operations were insufficient. In fact, the person in charge of of really dealing with this uh, was not really aware of the documentation not being dealt with. Um, And as I said, Christina did try and get some more information. Uh, The next time NAFSUP is supposed to look at um, the fuel operations in Hawaii for the Navy is not till 2023. Uh, The Department of Health, by the way, has not yet uh, seen the report. But um, as you know, there's some activities going on regarding DOH and and Red Hill and, and other programs as well. Yeah, they do have that uh, meeting tomorrow, the advisory uh, fuel tank uh, committee meeting, which is the first time they've had this meeting since October. Uh, And I know Christina's story talks about a member of that uh, committee, um, you know, who was just really helpless because, you know, she's saying what? Kind of, they knew about kind this. Of blown away, yeah, actually. And we should say, you know, the Navy is those two fuel leaks that got all the attention last year. The Navy has blamed human error for that happening. But what this report shows, the strong suggestion is a pattern 
of dysfunction that has been that was going on prior uh, to these to those two fuel leaks. By the way, all of this a lot of this is coming from records requests, FOIAs as we call them, Freedom of Information Acts. Uh, the Defense Department is actually kind of. Uh, crack down on that for now. They want to review documents first to find out what happened within the Department of Defense. But as you know, there's a lot of folks that may be wanting to file a class action lawsuit of people whose drinking water was contaminated uh, by these fuel leaks. And, and you can imagine how important these documents, the Navy's own documentation on what was going on would be should lawsuits emerge, as they almost certainly will. Right. And and we do know that there are multiple probes going on, you know, mm, Inspector General, yeah. the EPA, and, and we're waiting for the results of that, waiting for some kind of a, a disciplinary action if there needs to be. Um, but, yeah, so maybe some of this will be included in that report whenever, whenever so. that comes out. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. We have been talking with Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Um, you can read Christina Jedra's full story at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with a mission to create relevant and transformative experiences through art with collections of Asian, European, and American works, including arts of Hawaii and textiles. HonoluluMuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove, author of The Roots of Consciousness. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the survival of human consciousness after permanent bodily death. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Who are you going to call? KakuaNeeded.org is a website launched this week by Anne-Marie Kirk. She's long worked as a volunteer with the Livable Hawaii Kai Hui, a watchdog group protecting cultural sites in the area. She felt communities across the state needed a go-to place to find answers when they had concerns about ocean access or how to go about protecting cultural resources on their islands. That's how KukuaNeeded.org was formed. Sometimes when you get a community project or you get a community issue, like say an ocean access is blocked, you don't know who to call, who you're supposed to get in touch with, what the laws are in place. And so you find yourself, like we did, like calling multiple numbers, trying to find everything on the Internet. And it's so time-consuming and frustrating that the idea was to create a website where when that issue comes up, also if a cultural site, site is threatened or Ibi Kapuna are threatened, that you can find you know, all the different things you need from tax map keys to historical maps to who your city council member is and the things that you can do. So I just hope it'll be helpful for community members. In trying to get that information, you find out you don't know who is involved with what and what agency. So you find out, well, it's the city until the high water mark, and the high water mark on is the state. But then how do you get to those right agencies? And so for us, it was took so long to find someone who could help us to just say, this is who's in charge, or this is the agency that's in charge when Nalpaco grows across the path or when people put it into the public beach area. And we recounted that through the years and just going on, multi, like I said, multiple websites and making multiple phone calls. And hopefully this will be a way, like most of the things you need are going to be at this one spot. Um, and then from there, I mean, you're going to have to get into particulars, but even like a tax map key. So there's links to tax map keys for every island. So all of the things that I've encountered in trying to do community work, I've tried to put into this website. And I also tested the website with other community um, organizations and people that are involved in being active in the community. And so I got all their feedback as well in putting this together. And, you know, as I was building it, in fact, a friend of mine who was one of the testers called and said his friend was on the North Shore and had an access way blocked. And this site would be perfect for them. So today is the day. And, you know, I'm uh, quietly, not quietly, I'm actually loudly spreading the word on the uh, Hawaii Public Radio. <laughs> well, you know, for as long as I've known you, you've worn different hats. Uh, but your passion has been around, uh, you know, protecting it with cultural sites, you know, access to areas. This is really something that 
really, you, then you've, you've been working on for a long time. Yeah, it really has been. I went through so many different roadblocks trying to find and navigate a way to find answers for what do you do when our, like our heiau is threatened by development? You know, who are the agencies that I call? Who are the agencies that our community gets involved with? And, you know, it can be very, very frustrating and difficult where people give up because they're just so frustrated with the process. And so I kind of put that mindset into what would I like to see on a website that would help. So a cultural site is threatened. You call the State Historic Preservation Division. You call your council member. You call your state rep. But all that information is in one place. You're not having to go all over for it. And I, you know, those were the things that frustrated me through the years that I would bounce from one website to another or one office uh, to another. And so, again, hopefully this will be one place that you'll be able to find a lot of this information. Now, it's not 100% what you're going to need. But it's going to be, I think, all the things that I know I encountered through 20-plus years of doing this work. A majority of my work is with the Livable Hawaii Kaihui, with Mamalua.net, and with the Mamalua Fishbone Heritage Center. Those are the three groups that have, in East Oahu, you know, really um, stood and said, no, we really need to protect our cultural and natural resources. And it's not being anti-development, it's being pro-cultural resources, pro-natural resources, because once these places are gone, we're not going to get them back. And so in doing that work, Malka to Makai, you know, we find like-minded people, right? And we're all doing the same thing. Okay, who do I call? Okay, what agency do I go to? So it was information that was, was shared. And um, again, and the website is statewide. So wherever you are, it's going to apply to you, whether you're on Hawaii or Kauai or Maui, it's, it's all there for you. And what about when you're talking about lands that may be on military uh, property? Well, that's a whole different issue. And again, the website is to provide you information. It's not to provide the answers for you. So if, if there is something on the military, at least on the website, you can get the tax map. You can see the history of that land. And then, again, pursue more of that information that's needed. So it's a launching pad for you to understand the process. And also in there, I've included media connection. So how do you get a hold of media? What does that mean when you, when you connect with media? Um, you know, having everything lined up, who do you want to have uh, do the interview? What are the kind of things media is going to ask for? A lot of people don't know that, but I've provided it on the website and how I address community issues with the livable Hawaii Kaihui, with Monolua.net, or at Fishmont Heritage Center. And were you able to get any kind of financial support as you put this website together? Absolutely. I want to give a big mahalo to the League of Women Voters on Oahu for the educational grant. Um, it's, this is a website I've been thinking of for a long time, and speaking with the League of Women Voters, this is exactly the kind of project that they said they want to support. Because, again, change happens when you get involved, but change happens when you vote. And so I'm really proud that this project and website is aligned with the League of Women Voters because democracy is not a spectator sport. You have to get involved. Community work is not spectator sport. You have to get involved if you want to save these cultural or natural sites. That was Anne-Marie Kirk talking about a new website that just launched this week, kokuaneeded.org. Asian American and Pacific Islanders take the spotlight this month, and it's an opportunity to pay tribute to women of color like Native Hawaiian activist and author Auntie Maxine Kahaulelio. The Oahu native has been active in Hawaii's demilitarization movement since the late 70s and fought against evictions in Chinatown and Waiholi communities in the decades since. In 2019, she was the first of the kapuna arrested during protests against the construction of the 30-meter telescope. And in 2021, she was named to the American Planning Association's list of 12 AAPI who've shaped our cities. Auntie Maxine took time recently to talk to the conversations Russell Subiano via phone from her home on Hawaii Island. 
when you were starting out as an activist, where did your passion come from? Was it something that your family instilled in you? Did something happen that you developed that passion on your own? Well, I, um, so how I really got into activism, well, went to high school, got married, and then my husband died 1975. He was 36 when he died. And then I had hard time, very hard time. I lived in Haula many, many years. Mm-hmm. And we did a welfare coalition, welfare rights coalition, because we were hurting. We're people on half working, half on welfare. It was hard. I was young. I had five children. The system didn't like us. They don't like welfare recipients. We're the scums of the world, they said. And that's how I learned. That's how I started realizing, hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So a bunch of us got together, and I had a hard time burying him because we didn't have money. So they wanted to put him Nililani, put him in a grave, mock unknown. No, 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 no. You don't do that to one Kanaka. I married Kahabulileo. You don't just put somebody in one grave and put on unmarked stone. No, 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 that's not going to happen. But I fought. I fought. Many of us fought. We went to the legislature. We got things changed, making them pay our burial for our people who are on welfare. We got the rights to be buried in dignity. Then after that, start going, and I start getting into it, involving in a lot of things. But prior to that, but we tried the best we can as people from Haula community. The drugs that took over, oh, it was hard. Drugs, unreal, just eating up our community. So we got involved with that. We got involved with everything for our children. Then after that, I got involved, and all of a sudden we hear about Kohimalamalama Okanaloa, Kahoolawe. So Gwen and I, you know, a whole bunch of us, hey, Mac, let's go to the meetings. We did. We listened. And in 1977, we got, I got arrested, 14 of us, along with Liko Martin. We got arrested for illegally illegally now, going on our own island. And then we had Samuel King was our judge. We had seven years probation and $1,000 signature on our heads. We could not go back to Kaha'olawe in seven years. I said, hell no, I'm going back. I don't care what. They tell me, go, I'm going. But anyway, that's, that's how I got into I'm curious about that era in the 70s when you guys were working to protect Koholave and you were mm-hmm. being an activist in, in, in a lot of the other different ways, yes. what was it like for Wahine at the time who were also passionate about Native Hawaiian rights and willing to stand up for them? Was it very balanced? Did the men and, and women, were they right there side by side or, or did oh, it take a little while for Wahine to, to be more involved? They were. Definitely they were. They were right next to us. In fact, we wanted to be right next to them. Let's put it that way. We seen our men, Kavai Kapu and George Ham, all the Rotary, all of them. They struggled hard to keep our islands being Hawaii and their wives. I mean, we had family. I had a family. I worked for the state of Hawaii, the Department of Education. I worked hard, but I went. If you like, fire me, fine. But not already. Stop desecrating our land, yeah. our islands, or whatever you may call it. And the Kani who went on the island also stood by us, Vahine. They took care of us. They took good care of the Vahine. But we were warriors. We made it to the point. Now, I was a grandma already in 77. I had a two-year-old grandchild, but I went. Not only for my kids, but for her. And that's the Hawaiian way. Mm-hmm. See, that's what they want to take away from us. They, they want to take up all this aloha, the meaning of ohana. Why? The government wanted to rule the Hawaiians. They wanted to delete the Hawaiians. But we're here. We're still here no matter what. So these are the things that I've done and much more. I've been arrested. I've been knocked at the state capitol. I've been punched by a security guard. You name it, mm-hmm. I've been through it. But I'm still here. Auntie's still here. One thing that I think about is mm-hmm. the example that you set for Wahine. And after the kupuna were arrested on the Mauna, mm-hmm. and the women locked arms and sang. Mm-hmm. 
when they were ready to be the next ones to stand up for the mountain. That's right. That's right. How did that make you feel about the future? Very proud. You know, I'm going to go a step back further. Okay. Okay. At this meeting, when I kind of expressed about us getting arrested, the kupuna and everything, I think when it went back to the younger generations, the young ones, and we were at the kupuna tent and stuff, you should see the reaction of our young people. They cried their heart out, but they kue. That's what made me more proud. They stood there because they knew that wasn't their time to move in. They knew that we as legends, as kupunas, was our time. And the respect, oh, they were there singing, the melis singing and holding each other. And that's what we wanted. We wanted them to kue, that they see their kupuna going forth for them to go forth in their generation. And, you know, I think we did it because it went global. And we didn't, I didn't do it because, oh, that's my celebrity status, BS. No, it is time for us to get our land back, get our culture back, and damn, if they're going to ruin any more of our sacred mountains. You know, Tibet has their own sacred mountain. Japanese has their own sacred mountain. Everybody has, the Mayas have their sacred mountain. Why are we different? Why do they hate us so much as Kanaka? We're going to win, and we're going to get back those people, even if we have to go back on the road and stop the desecration of our Mauna. We're going to do it. And the U.S. every kupuna, they're going to go back. I know I'm going back. I mean, if I have to go back on my walker or a cane or whatever, I don't care. You know who's going to be next to me? The next generation. In all of your years of activism and all of your years uh, for standing up for Native Mm -hmm. rights, Native lands, had you ever seen our people come together like that? No. Standing up for our rights, it's about time, don't you think so? We Hawaiians have nothing actually left. What do they want? What do the government want? We are living here. This is my home. This is where I go in Hala. This is where our kids supposed to be, but they can't be. And I'm not understanding of all this heva that's going on for years and years and years. What do they actually want? from us Hawaiians. First of all, they want land, and they want our resources. That's all we have. We're just an island. People forget that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, true. You know, and it's a small island. We can't build a bridge connecting all our islands. We need to build bridges for people. And I have seen a multitude of our people. In fact, the march that they took on Mauna Kea mm-hmm. in Oahu. There were 30,000 marchers in Oahu for Mauna Awakea. What would you like your legacy to be? What would you like to be remembered <laughs> for? <laughs> Me? Just a person. Just Auntie Max. Nothing big. I think this was my call because when I first went on Kaho'olawi, There was a parable in our Bible, and I went on that basis. I'm not really worried about what people think of me, but I go according to my keakua, who has led me, who has given me this responsibility. And I'm pretty sure he's proud of me because I have committed to working for the land and to working for the people. And you know what? If I got paid, I would freaking be (laughs) (laughs) But that's not where I'm coming from. I have never took a cent. I've never been paid under, I've been paid over the table on the, well, I have never. That's okay. My legend, who I want them to think of me as being a warrior. That's all. Nothing special, you know, nothing special. Just a warrior, anti-max the warrior. To teach my younger generation, because someone told me many years ago, and I was young. I was a widow at, what, 36, raising five children and a mo'opuna, plus a job, plus a community work, 
plus all this stuff. Someone told me, Matt, you want to help the Hawaiian people? You better not be afraid. Because if you are afraid, if you get fear, oh, no be in this movement. Why? You cannot have fear. This going to take you all kind of way, you know. I go, really? He told me, yeah. There's nothing here. Wait, wait. You really want to be in the movement? Don't bring fear in you, but only love. Love and aloha. And I have put that around my heart. And I told my younger generation, I told those girls up the mana, if you get fear, go home. You no more fear? Stay here. <laughs> How simple. I was never afraid. Afraid for my family. I mean, you know, I mean, just in case, but... And Kiako has taken care of me all through these years. He has rebuilt my strength. I'm old now. I'm going to be 84 September. And I'm not done yet. I am not done. That was Native Hawaiian activist Anti-Maxine Kahaleleo talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Anti-Max is one of the co-authors of Nawahine Koa, an anthology about Hawaiian activism and the movement for sovereignty. Support for HPR comes from Kumu Kahua Theater, presenting Blue by Will Kaheli. A musical duo and their hula counterparts discover that sometimes their entertainment has profound impacts. Opens May 26th, kumukahua.org. Reality TV is full of villains you love to hate and hate to love. And for one villain, the haters give her a boost. Confidence was something that really gained over the years of rejection. And I used my haters and my doubters to fuel my fire. Christine Quinn of the reality show Selling Sunset talks about her new book next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for HPR comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu since 1964, committed to helping preserve the island's land, ocean, and culture with its Kahala Initiative for Sustainability, Culture, and the Arts, kahalaresort.com. happens to be National Photography Month, and it's been 15 years since Hawaii's award-winning photographer Clark Little jumped into the ocean with a disposable camera to capture his first wave on film. Since then, images shot from Clark's view, a unique perspective of seeing waves from the inside, have been impressing audiences all over the world. Little's third book, The Art of Waves, was published recently. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with Little to reflect on his career making art that started by chance. It's really fun to read this quote from you saying, it's been 15 years since I picked up a camera and took it into the ocean to get a picture of a wave for my bedroom wall, a special request from my wife. Yeah, and it's so weird what triggers someone's future, someone's jobs, what triggers your something that turns into your full-time passion. Because I always was in the ocean. I surfed the shore break. I surfed swam, body surfed, shore break since I was a little kid. So that part I already knew I loved, but I was at a botanical garden for 17 years, kind of in the middle of my life and career, when my wife brought that image home and I told her, hey, what are you buying an image of a wave? Don't go buy an image of a wave. I think I have the skills to go out there and do it. And that literally was the start of me getting a disposable camera and then upgrading and upgrading and then starting to share my work. And it struck a nerve. And because people 
think a lot of people were shooting a lot of surfers, you know, surfer magazine, surfing magazine. Not many people were getting into big shore break waves and going inside and capturing the raw beauty. It was a different look, and it did strike a nerve. And I was grateful it happened so fast, you know, because of the feedback. I was traveling the world, did the Good Morning America and all the morning shows. Gosh, it's been 15 years. That's a long time, but it's sure it's actually a quick time, too. And there was no real recipe I didn't have any i guess you could say it kind of evolved i didn't have a plan we just we winged it because it was happening so fast and it just turned into a full-time career that i i deeply love and it gives me freedom to spend time with my family and couldn't ask for anything more right now mm-hmm. this all started with you and a disposable camera and the will to outshine that commercial wave that your wife brought home and for that to be how the snowball just started, and you're saying you don't have a recipe, but when I look at your your pictures, what comes to mind really is like the movement, your speed. You capture this wonderful POV, this perspective with an eye for color, for immediacy. This was your backyard, your playground, you were in the water, and these are the things that you get to see. It is interesting. For me, I had to learn the camera. I had the skill to be in the ocean. I kind of know where the spots are where the water's clean and there's a beautiful backdrop and uh, the sun is right inside the tube. And I had that kind of advanced section of, you know, photography, but I had to learn the camera. I did ask a few professional photographers, hey, you know, what, what are the basic settings? You know, what do I need to do to go and get in the tube and take the shot? Because I'm not a guy that goes through the books and and read, and I don't even go on the YouTube. I just trial and error and and just being in the perfect spot to capture that beauty. I'm more of an artist. I like to get creative. I learn as I go. Not to say reading the books is, you know, not bad. I think that's that's awesome also. But just the way I did it was just kind of winging it, sharing my work, um, getting it exposed you know, making decisions on where and how and what. I mean, it's, yeah, it all, like I said, it it was not, I didn't go to school. I didn't go to, you know, to school for photography. My, But I mean, on a side note, my dad was a photography teacher for 30 years. So is it in the blood? Yes. Um, You know, he was at Punahou for eight years, and then he went uh, to uh, Leeward Community College and taught there for 22 years. So I was in the dark room. I learned a little bit of stuff, but I mean, it was more a little kid just visiting dad. And, and But maybe I did pick up on some stuff and maybe I got that artistic eye from my father, which is an interesting story in itself. Hmm. Well, they do say that children pick up language the quickest and it sounds like for you, photography was a language that you were exposed to through your father. And I'm sure that's going to be a wonderful book or story for you to put down in the future to share and, you know, keep in the Wahana. But that's just wonderful. I never realized, though, that I never heard your dad taught photography. Yeah, we came, believe it or not. So I was actually born in Napa, California, and my dad got a job at Punahou teaching. He started the photography program at Punahou when I was one or two years old. And so we packed up our bags. We moved on to Punahou campus. And that's where my brother and I, at a young age, went to school. So my parents took us to the beach at an early age. And we were in town a lot back then. And, we, you know, we go to Walls and, and Waikiki and, you know, like Boogie Board. And then we finally ended up moving to the North Shore when I was, geez, maybe about eight or so. And then we ended up going to Haleiwa, learn how to surf. And I've always loved Hawaii. I've always loved the ocean. It is my second home. There's no question. Being out in the ocean, I feel so comfortable. And I wouldn't go out in those big ways if I didn't enjoy it. I really do like getting tossed around. And then now just bringing in a camera with me and capturing that shot and sharing those those crazy moments. And so it's it's been a fun journey for me. I mean, like I said, I would not change my career or life at all just because I'm so blessed and fortunate to be here doing what I love and trying to put smiles on people's faces these days is not the easiest thing to do and, and I'm I'm so stoked at the response and I'm, I'm that people are 
I don't know. I mean, I love the feedback. I love when people are excited and appreciate what they see, you know, in, in my work. And it makes me feel good. And so it keeps me energized and excited to go back out there and get a different wave or a different sunset or rainbow. I mean, it's it never ends. The journey never ends for me. I'm always out there trying to get something new, artsy and fresh. And I don't think that's going to stop. I think that passion will be there until the day I die. And right now, the best thing I have to share is this new book because it has everything. And I'm really excited and very actually proud to be able to share my work worldwide with everybody. Mm -hmm. And this new book, it's a hardcover with 240 pages, 150 images. But for people who, who want to learn more about you or who want to really kind of you know get into the backstory of your images, you do have a bit in your book as well to talk about your practice, your technique. With the preview of the book, there's this beautiful shot of just a turtle. Is it? I mean, it kind of feels like it's jumping over the wave, but at the same time, I know that, you know, physically it would be in the water, but you just capture this moment of this turtle. Give me the backstory on this shot. How did you get it? So the turtles, actually the turtles at, well, they call it Turtle Beach at Laniakea, just along that coast, there's a lot of turtles that they go swimming back and forth along the shallow shore, right? So what I was doing is as they're coming in to feed off the seaweed and I am stay a little bit back where the waves are breaking, and what happens when the sets come, the turtles turn around and they can feel the water coming and they'll come out towards me as the wave is breaking over. It's a little hard to explain, but when they're coming out towards the deeper ocean, I capture the shot of the turtles kind of duck diving or swimming through the back of the wave. And what that kind of does, it just makes it look like they're almost flying in the, in the water. So yeah, I did that. I got a couple awards in the Smithsonian. It's called Flying Honu. It was one of them. And it's so much fun to, to sit back and, first of all, just sit back and be swimming with these things. And the turtles are beautiful. They're elegant, and they kind of have their own little style. And to capture it and share it, yeah, people enjoy the turtles or Honu and Hawaiian. And that's one of my favorite subjects to shoot along, of course, with the waves and everything else. Mm-hmm. And so you've been able to just really read the rhythm of the ocean and then knowing for your subject matter, the honu, kind of knowing what they will be doing in response to the rhythm of the wave. Yeah, where they're coming and you kind of feel it. You know, I mean, I think you kind of feel it more than, you know, you're attempting to do something. You're almost kind of in the zone, at least for me, especially with waves. You know, you feel a backwash, meaning two waves coming that, are going to hit and make this glass sculpture you just got it's like the spur of the moment you turn to the right turn to the left boom and there's the spray or the whole no okay i think after experience i mean i've done it i spend hours and five six hours in the ocean sometimes a day and after a long time i mean you learn you start to get experience and know which way the turtle or the dolphin or the shark is going to turn and, you know, I mean, to get that shot, okay, the sun's right above it. You're going to get the rays coming down as as the shark's coming toward me. And, I mean, so you, you, there's a lot, you put a lot of time in. It's not like I just go out there and shoot a shoot an image. I mean, you got to be out there and feel like you are a shark when you're swimming with the sharks or you are a turtle swimming around with the turtle. I mean, that's literally how I, I am in, in there. And, and it's kind of like if you can fit in there and belong, you know, kind of be as one then I think it's easier to get the shot. Mm-hmm. And then also for you, really hearing from you how you, you recognize that you live in such a blessed place, for you to also be in the right place at the right time. Can we go back? What were you doing at the Botanical Gardens? Yes, so the Botanical Gardens, I was actually a supervisor. I oversaw 27 acres of native and tropical plants from all over the world. Started that job when I was 22, Loved it. Loved it. We planted trees and collected new species from native stuff as well as all over the world. And we had different sections. It's a really gorgeous place. So I am a nature freak. I mean, I really do like to see and be around, you know, plants and ocean and mammals and different things. So I did that botanical garden thing and I loved it. And then I had to make a decision. So it was a city and county job. 
great job. I had the you know the weekends off and a lot of vacation, sick leave, everything. So when I started to see my photography start to blossom, I had to make a decision. You know, like, am I going to quit this full time job that I can continue my whole career and retire from, to take a risk and jump into this photography thing that I'm not 100% sure. You know, I shared it with my family, my parents, my wife, and it was a little risky and I was a little bit scared, but I'm like, you know what? I felt good about it. I had like a few articles printed. I was in a couple galleries and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to put all my time into this, resign from the city and give it a shot. And honestly, it was the best decision I ever made. And I got exactly what I wanted from it and more. And so here I am 15, 17 years later since I resigned. I got a gallery in Haleiwa. I have a website where I can share all my work. I got this new book, 240 pages. You know, the book is awesome. I'm so happy. And, you know, so everything is just kind of falling into place. And I couldn't be more blessed. That was North Shore-based photographer Clark Little talking with HPR's Lillian Song. His third book, The Art of Ways, was published last month. Little will be at the Honolulu Museum of Art for a book signing event uh, next week, May 20th. We'll have photos and links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. That is it for today. Up tomorrow, we have a Hanaho show all about music. Give us some feedback. Got questions about anything you've heard on our air? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org and connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.